So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much um, for the opportunity for us to be here. Lord, the more that I gaze upon your face in scripture, the more I despise this world system. It has nothing for us. And uh, we cannot wait for the day that you return. You gather us up to yourself. And one day you will reign in righteousness and glory. We long for that day. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is an extremely significant doctrine. It is a significant doctrine for us because it underscores several things. It underscores that we have been forgiven, that God has accepted the Son as the acceptable sacrifice for our sins vicariously. He is our substitute. But I think one of the doctrines that is missed and the implications of this doctrine is what we have what the scriptures refers to as the ascension. The ascension is a important doctrine and it should not be missed by us who are believers. Let's take a look at a text, Luke 24, verses 50 to 53. I know our text was Acts 11, 1 through 11, but we're going to be spending time flipping through back and forth for verses this morning because we have a lot to get to. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. This is the last paragraph of the book of Luke before the gospel of John. It says this, And he led them, out as far as Bethany, that is, the uh, the disciples. And he had lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And, after their, and, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. I find it interesting that the ascension is something that Luke focused on in both of his texts. Okay? As a matter of fact, you won't find it in any other Gospels except Luke, the Ascension. Let's talk about the implications of the Ascension and walk through the text because I want us to get how important this is concerning his doctrine. Now, again, I got to tell you, you know when I'm up here, uh, there it is. Right on. I don't even have to tell you now. Let's look at the first implication of the ascension of Christ. I should imagine there should be some amens around this room a little bit. You don't want, to, you don't want people to think you're too charismatic. Now. Okay. The implications of the ascension of Christ. First of all, it underscores the veracity or the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, yes, the death of the death of Christ is underscored in the New Testament. That is true. 
The burial and resurrection of Christ is outlined, highlighted, taught in the Old Testament text. That is true. But the ascension of Christ is also within the Old Testament text also. In Psalm 110, I I would suggest you keep your thumb on this psalm because we're going to come back to it often. And then when I'm done, we're going to read this whole thing. The psalm, it's only seven verses. Okay. But in Psalm 110 verse 1, it says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We see in this verse, just this verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110. David writes this psalm. It's fascinating because in Matthew chapter, well, wait, hold on. Matthew chapter 22. Turn there right quick. We'll come back to Psalm 110. In Matthew chapter 22. The book of Matthew underscoring that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of the Jewish people. Matthew chapter 22. Give me one more time. Yeah. Verses 41 and following. Jesus invokes this part of the song. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together in Matthew chapter 22... Jesus asked them a question. Who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Kurios, Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor anyone dared from that day on ask him another question. Jesus invokes this song concerning himself, asking the Pharisees a question. This psalm, he wasn't, he isn't at God's right hand, at least at this point in the narrative of Matthew. Okay? So again, Jesus invoking, underscoring the truthfulness of the veracity of the Old Testament texts. That has implications for us as well. I'll get to that at the end here, shortly. Implication number two is the sending of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit indwells in us as a deposit For basically God fulfilling his word to redeem our bodies. Did you know that? Did you know that the sending of the Holy Spirit would not be possible unless Jesus ascended? Let's take a look. This is John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Jesus discussing with his disciples... Before he is taken, before he is raw, falsely accused, before he is crucified, is having Passover with his disciples. And he shares with them 
this in verse 5 and following. I'm sorry, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. No, I'm just playing. (laughs) Verse 7. I will start at verse 5 for context, though. But But now I'm going to him who sent me. That's interesting. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you all, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I am leaving. For if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, he comes, um, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because they do not believe in me and regarding righteousness because I'm going to the father and you will no longer see me and regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. It's fascinating because you would do you not realize that we would not have a new testament if Jesus did not ascend. God gave the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles wrote the New Testament. We would not have a New Testament if it were not for the ascension. Consequently, we would not be indwelt with his spirit either. Wow. Wow. Look at Acts 2, verse 33. This is interesting because this is Peter's first witness, his first testimony. Okay? Acts 2, verse 33. I'll start at verse 29 for context. Peter ascending, getting up and speaking to those in the upper room. During the time of Shavuot, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both was died and buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, his resurrection. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we were all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Man, that sounds familiar. That sounds like what we just read in Matthew. And it also sounds like what was underscored in Psalm 110. And has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. He is poured out. This which you see and hear. You remember the day of Pentecost, right? Shavuot, the the Jews are all gathered in one place. They're there. Uh, uh, Forty days after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes and pours himself on all of those who were there. There would not be an indwelling of the Holy Spirit without the ascension. But there's more. There's tons here. The implications of the ascension of Jesus Christ is the association of the inauguration of the church. Did you know there would not be 
an, an economy of the called out ones, the church age, without the ascension. Did you know that? Let's take a look. You don't, you don't look like you're convinced. Okay, I understand. This is Acts 2. It says, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. From, uh, from heaven it came. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves. And a tongue rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues or different languages as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. As a matter of fact, we find that this economy of the church is very different from the old economy. Right? There's some differences here. Let's take a look at the economy under Moses... That is the Mosaic law and the church. You'll find that the differences come, the dividing line is the ascension. It's really fascinating. First of all, uh, the Mosaic economy was underscored by the Mosaic law. Gentiles were excluded. You could be a, 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 a proselyte, but you could not be a Israelite as a Gentile. It's fascinating. But in the church economy, Gentiles are included in this mix. We are from all tribes, all nations, all languages. It was not like that in the old economy, in the economy of Moses. As Israel was to be an example to all of the other surrounding nations as to the true God versus all of these false deities that were within these other lands... The church economy is to be distinguished, to be outlined, to be uh, uh, distinctive as a group of individuals from all places. While the law unified Israel as a national people, his spirit unifies us. Wow. Wow. The law was conditional for the nation. If you, if you don't embrace false deities, I'll bless you. If you do, you won't. You will be punished as a result of your embracing these false deities. However, the unrighteous behavior is not consistent with the identity of Christ. When we act unbecomingly, we act, we are not aligned with our identity in Christ. This is, this is clear in the book of, in the book of Ephesians. Where Paul writes all of these things that they are. Same thing with 1 Corinthians, by the way. He doesn't just launch into correcting them. He tells them who they are first. Holy ones, saints, blameless before him, confirming the testimony that was given to them, uh, eagerly awaiting the appearing of Christ. We talked about that last week. Then he goes into correcting them. So unrighteous behavior is, is corrected. And it's due to the fact that one is a believer. That's different from the Mosaic economy. 
Third, the Holy Spirit was selective in his indwelling in workers, priests, kings, prophets. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit did not just indwell everyone in the old economy. However, in the church economy, his Holy Spirit indwells all Jews and Gentiles in preparation for his coming and the redemption of our bodies. That is Ephesians 1 verse 14. He is a deposit, a guarantee, a down payment that he's going to finish the work. That was not in the old economy. Oh, there's more like ShamWow. There is a distinct, for Israel, there's a national focus in the Old Testament. Yes, Israel was to be a light, a beacon to the surrounding nations. But there is a national focus here, underscored. But in the church, wouldn't you know it? An international focus. In the Mosaic economy, hope for Israel and the Gentiles is future focus as the installation of the Messiah King. If you read the prophets of the Old Testament, it is clear all throughout the text. The church that is Paul writes is a mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It's interesting. However, hope for Israel and the nations is underscored all throughout Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Nahum. Zachariah or Zechariah, depending on your preference. All the way to Malachi, Hosea. In the church economy, whoa, too fast. In the church economy, future hope for the church is mentioned. However, it's not mentioned in respect to being delivered as a nation, but it is, it is focused on the blessed hope of his appearing. And the rapture and resurrection of the saints. In the Mosaic economy, national blessings and curses are associated with national works. That is idolatry. But isn't this interesting? Spiritual blessings are associated with being in Christ. That is Ephesians 1. That is 1 Corinthians 1. All of the spiritual blessings that we receive, we receive as a result of being in Christ. Because of the work, amen indeed, because of the work that he has accomplished for us. So we have, it underscores the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the association of the inauguration of the church age. That this is a different economy, this is a different period than back then. It is associated with his exaltation. The reason why we sing that he's exalted is because he's ascended. That's why we sung this this morning. That he is high and exalted. That's the reason why. It's because he has ascended to the Father. In Psalm 110, 4 or 5, I can't wait to get to this. This is an amazing song. But we're going to look at pieces of it. Psalm 110, verses 4 and 5. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change. His immutable character will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. 
We see this again in Acts 2, verse 33. It's very fascinating here. How, how Psalm 110 and Acts 2 parallel each other quite nicely. Peter, Peter says this, Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out on which you both see and hear. His exaltation is directly related to his ascension. Wow. Wow. Let's look at the word exalted for a minute. The word exalted is the word hoopso. The word in this context, as Peter has wrote this, or Peter has spoken this and Luke has detailed it. This word in this context is the person that is raised up to the highest honor. You can't get any higher than that. In this case, Jesus was honored by God the Father highly. And was raised to sit at the right hand of God. We sing about his being exalted and being lifted up. Wow. It's all because of the fact that he's ascended. That's why. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 to 31. We see this word here used as well as Peter is presenting again the message to the Jewish people. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, that is his resurrection, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. And forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him or who hear him. His exaltation is directly related to his ascension. And because of this, because of this, the reality of him being king of Israel and savior to Israel and the world is underscored in this text because of his ascension. But there's more, though. Some points to consider. One, being exalted to the Father's right hand emphasizes the authority that Jesus has been given by the Father. This is 1 Peter 3, 22. Second, His being exalted to the Father's right hand is he is the one whom God accepts. He is the acceptable sacrifice. He's the one. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. The implications for the Jews is the one who was sent by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one. So the implication for the Jews concerning Jesus' ascension is that he is the Messiah King. He is the one. He is the one. I have a song in my head. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to do it. It's a nice joke, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to refrain. I'm going to be grown up today. 
Maybe. Implications for the Gentiles. So not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, that he's the living God in contrast to the false idol worship among the Gentiles. This is what we see when um, Paul is writing to the saints of Colossae. He refers to Jesus as being the living God. We don't serve a God of mute idols, but we serve a living God, right? This is in contrast to this. It's not only the fact that he resurrected, that's important, but that he ascended too. It is associated with the rapture and resurrection of the saints. We just, we talked about this last week, but his ascension is directly connected to this. As a matter of fact, we see this in John 14. <clears throat> it's underscored here. It's directly uh, uh, taught with Paul. But there's an inkling of this, an underscoring of this, when Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If I were not so, I would not have told you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, this is interesting language because where is Jesus right now at this time? He is, at, at this period when it's written, he's with the disciples at the Passover. He speaks in present tense as if he's already there, solidifying that he's going there. And where, and if he goes there, he will return and receive them to himself and take them to where he is. That's amazing. That's a promise, folks. This was given to the disciples in the upper room before Jesus was uh, tried and crucified. Okay? He says, and you know where I'm going. You know the way I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see this, again, this uh, language, this doctrine underscored in 1 Thessalonians 4. We mentioned this, we went through this last week. But let's look at it again. Because I love this doctrine. 1 Thessalonians 4, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind do, who, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For if we believe that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's one of the reasons why we're going up. Because we're going to where he is. 
he wouldn't be able to descend unless he ascended first. All the implications of the ascension are important. If there was no ascension, there would be no rapture and there would be no resurrection, folks. Wow. Notice how all these things tie together. They are linked together. They hinge upon one another. It is associated with being David's greater son. We don't really talk about this a lot, but this is important because this concerns the lineage of Israel. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. Notice here, in Peter's words, Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. This God, Jesus, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. This is verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. Remember, David is revered as the greatest king among those who are in Israel. He was a great king, great ruler, great shepherd. But it wasn't David who ascended into heaven. David is in the dirt, folks. But he himself said, that is, he himself said, David, David testified of a greater son than him. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like Matthew 22. That sounds like Psalm 110. David did not ascend to the right hand of God because David's not God. David's not the Messiah. But David pointed to the Messiah, though. This verse underscored not only his exaltation, but his eventual reign on David's throne. He's the one, David's greater son, the one talked about in 2 Samuel. There's more. I got about several other slides up here. There's more implications here. Check this out. It is associated with Jesus being the Christ. Acts 2.36. Again, therefore let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Paul, or sorry, Peter, declaring this to the Jews at the days of, at the day of Pentecost. It is associated with the intercessory work for the church age saints. Do, do, okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna step back here. Do you do we not get this? Man. Man. Do you realize that Jesus intercedes for us? The reason why he does is because he's ascended. You can't, I mean, you can ask me to pray for you. That's great. I'll do that. But I mean, you can't have a better prayer uh, person than Christ. You can't have that. Check this out. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 33 to 34. One of the, one of the greatest chapters. As Paul is writing his theological discourse to the saints of Rome, he says this. Who can bring a charge against the elect of God? God is the one who justifies. Verse 33. He who is the one who condemns. Who? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Even more has been raised. Even more is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? He intercedes for us. When we are in our darkest of moments... He intercedes for us. When we're not, He intercedes for us. Oh man. Without the ascension, there would be no intercession. This intercession is associated with His role of being great high priest. He intercedes for us. You know, I think sometimes, let me get, can I get on my soapbox for just a second? Can I do that? Okay. I'm going to do that anyway, even if you don't like. I think sometimes when we go through things that are difficult, especially when we are burdened with all types of sins, we know what we struggle with. We take our eyes off of this. The grace that has been given to us in Christ. And this grace is underscored and realized by the fact that we have not only a prince, not only a savior, but an intercessor in Christ. That is huge. This also makes the case, really, for eternal security, too. Because when we become believers in Christ, and we end up going sideways, God doesn't go, oh, guess I lost that one. He intercedes for his saints. Oh, my gosh. What... A friend we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your intercessory work. It is associated with Jesus and his office of being great high priest. We we just talked about this, right? Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. Now, the main point is what we've said in this. uh, The author of Hebrews from the previous verses... Discussing Melchizedek. Now the main point that what we have said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord has set up, not man. Do you realize that Jesus is in the true tabernacle? He's not in a copy, folks. He is there. 
interceding for his saints before God the Father himself. Oh, you can't get any better prayer than that. Man, we could spend all day talking about that. But we don't got that kind of time. The implications of the ascension of Jesus Christ is the result that the saint can focus on a spiritual reality. Again, Christ wants us to be, to succeed in this life. He doesn't want us to wander around. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do. He wants us to stay focused. He understands that this world is difficult. He understands that. He understands that this world is tough. He understands that. And he's given us the focus of what we are to do. This focus is found not just in his death, burial, and resurrection, but his ascension as well. Don't believe me? That's okay. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul, writing to the saints of Colossae, says this. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above. Where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God, set or fix your minds on what is above, not on what is on earth. Why would Paul write this? Because the saints of Colossae were having a problem focusing on things below. And we have this problem too. Especially... At this time where we live. I mean the world. It would seem. Is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean some very nefarious things. Are going on folks in the world. Very dark things. And yet. We are told. That because Jesus has ascended. We are can be attentive to that but we are not to set our gaze on that we are to set our gaze on things above to not be overwhelmed or consumed with the things that happen around us but to fix our gaze on the one who's ascended because that one who ascended will return Hebrews 12, 1, 2. Therefore, we, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, say, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and ensnares us so easily. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joys that lay before him endured the cross, despised his shame, and has sat down at the right hand Of the throne of God. Easily entangled in sin we are. Throw it off and focus on what's above. That's the solution. We can focus on a spiritual reality, folks. This world is passing away. But our hope is above. Last, it guarantees Jesus' inauguration into the messianic kingdom. Oh, man. Let's go to Psalm 110 and read the whole thing. Oh, this is fun. 
Oh, this is fun, fun, fun. We have such a great hope. Only seven verses. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth to you as the youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. When will that occur? That's very fascinating. We have within this text that he is the great high priest forever. That order has been filled according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at his right hand. That refers to the ascension. And he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. That is his coming. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will establish his kingdom, folks. It's a done deal. Psalm 110 verses 1 to 7 talks about his ascension, his exaltation, And his eventual return and his reign from Jerusalem. And we read about this return in Revelation 19. Let's turn there. And gaze upon the text as our Savior appears not to forgive sins. He's already done that but to deliver Israel and destroy his enemies. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, or diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of a fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This would not be possible of his return with the armies of heaven without the ascension. To sum up, Jesus' ascension proves the veracity of the Old Testament scriptures. Or shall I say, strengthens the veracity of the Old Testament scriptures, really. We can trust 
the instruction of the Old Testament because we can trust the eyewitness accounts of the testimonies of the New Testament. And the fulfillment of these prophecies given by David, spoken by Peter, underscored and taught by Christ himself. Jesus' ascension proves or supports or strengthens that he's God's anointed one. He's the one. He's it. There is no one else. And those who claim that they are someone else, they are phony. Jesus' ascension proves or strengthens the future promises of Israel as a nation and the nations. And quite frankly, it underscores the promises that he's given to us also as those who've been called out, the church. Jesus' ascension strengthens or proves that there's a different economy from of God. He doesn't operate the same way that he did in Israel. And Jesus' ascension proves the blessed hope of the church. Folks, we should be a church, the church, that not only confesses the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but we should be a church that confesses the ascension. The ascension of Christ. Because all of these things imply, are, are hinged on one another. When we go out and talk to our neighbors, our friends, when we talk to each other, the focus should be all of those, but especially the ascension. Grace and peace. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Lord, You are such a good God. Man, we have to be reminded time and time again. This is why the scriptures are so important. We have to be reminded time and again because we can see what's going on around us or even in our own lives and microcosm and macrocosm and we can forget how good you are. We are so easily forgetful. This is why it's important that we remind ourselves as you reminded the nation of Israel and you remind uh, through by way of the apostles to the first uh, pre-first century church. Thank you so much, Lord, that you've given us these things. These things for us to think about, to ponder. Thank you, Lord, that, that we are a church that confesses the ascension of Christ. And that all of the promises and all the things that are underscored as a result of that. We love you so much, Lord, and give you due praise, for it's in your son's name. Amen.